0: Welcome to this episode of RF Industry Icons podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today I'm talking with Joel Dunsmore, research fellow at Keysight Technologies. Joel received his PhD from Leeds University in 2004, and in 2008 was promoted to Agilent R&D fellow, working for the component test division. He was a principal contributor to the HP 8753 and PNA family of network analyzers, responsible for the RF and microwave circuit designs in these products. He has received 36 patents related to the work he's done over the years and has published numerous articles on measurement technology, as well as consulting on measurement applications. He has taught electrical circuit fundamentals at the local university and co-taught an RF course at the University of California, Berkeley, and presented several short courses and seminars through the ARFTag, MTT, EMC, and Agilent. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thank you for having me. So you went to Oregon State University and graduated with a BS and MSEE in the early 80s. What led you to join HP then? And what was your first job like? Well,
1: actually, my road to HP started on my first day at Oregon State University. My mom wanted me to stay in the, quote, quiet dorm, and everyone was very serious there. There was an initial meeting, and uh, I was in the back of the room cracking wise, as I sometimes do, (laughs) and uh, this blonde surfer-looking dude came over after and said, man, you're pretty funny. I'm going to be your friend. So uh, turned out to be my best friend. And his father was uh, a manager at Hewlett Packard here in Santa Rosa. And that's how I found out about Hewlett Packard. And uh, that's how I started uh, to look and see you know, where I might want to work and ended up getting a summer job with Hewlett Packard the first uh, or second summer after second year of college. And that turned into the career. Wow. And so what was your first job like? So. It was a kind of turning the crank job, literally. I was bolting together racks for instruments that were going to become the first uh, automated network analyzers. So my very first job was starting at the very ground level of nuts and bolts and cables and wires and lifting big boxes into these racks to build the first automatic network analyzers. And in fact, I think that's what led to me uh, getting the first job in R&D, we had a situation where for the first time, we had a new configuration that hadn't been built before us for actually one of the big uh, uh, companies in Japan. And for some reason, it couldn't switch between the two modes it was supposed to operate in. And I came in on a Saturday thinking, oh, I'll take a look at the code. You know, nobody's around. I'll, I'll sneak in, see what I can find. And back then, code was much simpler. You know, You only had a thousand lines to do anything. And I found one spot where there was one parenthesis on the wrong side of something, moved it over, and stuff started to work. So I moved it back. And on the Monday morning, I said, hey, you know, I I, I think I see something. And uh, they were able to ship the uh, instrument out. And uh, two days later, I got an offer to come back the next summer and work for the R&D department.
0: (laughs) Big discovery. Uh, Parentheses are important. Yes, they are. Everything counts in programming. So how did you end up going back to university for a PhD at Leeds University and finishing in 2004 when you were already working at Agilent?
1: Oh, uh, I had a couple of events that conspired to uh, push me into that. The first was uh, at the end of the uh, life of the 8753 in the late 90s, we made uh, one more revision of it. It'd be the fifth of the sixth, where we added a new high-speed CPU processor. High speed then was 32 megahertz, <laughs> so it's a big far cry from what we, but much better than the four megahertz we started out with. And um, I was doing some testing where we were trying to find out how well the new processor was working. So I had a couple of traces on the network analyzer and I turned on the time domain on one side and frequency domain on the other. It takes a lot of processing power to do that. And I discovered that. There was an odd behavior. I was tuning filters to get some real-time behavior. Notice that in the time domain, I could tell which tuning screw I was touching by looking only at the time domain. And it had a particular look when the filter is perfectly tuned. So that gave me the idea, maybe we can do something in the time domain. So I was thinking, uh, this is going to take a lot of math to figure out exactly how this works. We can't really make it into a product until we can explain it. And I was thinking I should, maybe this would be a good idea for a PhD. A colleague of mine had gotten a PhD at Leeds part-time. So I went to my boss and who was the lab manager at the time and said, "Ah, would you consider sponsoring me? And his answer was, ah, it's not really a good time. Don't really do that so much anymore. So I kind of set that aside. And about a month later, we had a big reorganization and, uh, I was moved into a different department that actually started me on a whole different career path. And, uh, The new manager basically that started this new front back organization where it was like a marketing or front end organization had permission to pull out whoever he wanted out of the uh, old organization. And he wanted me and he he said, "Uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, you work for me now. And I didn't really want to do that, uh, go into that organization. So I I started to say something about, well, I have a lot of things. And he said, oh, I know, I know your manager said he's said that you can work on a PhD. So um, absolutely, you can work on a PhD. Uh, in this new organization so my mind is spinning now because my manager actually didn't say that I found out later he was trying to retain me in his organization uh, <laughs> and uh, I said oh yeah of course I'm going to need a letter right away saying that you're going to sponsor it and uh, he did offer me 20 percent of my time to work on the phd so hopefully you can match that oh sure yeah we can do that so now all of a sudden that's like okay I'm committed to get a phd
0: <laughs> well it was a very practical one because it's from your work
1: Uh, It turns out um, I completed that PhD slightly under the amount of time that was officially allowed for a, because it was part-time PhD, but that was because for the next two years, my work exactly uh, aligned with the PhD work. And so I was really working full-time on the PhD, even though technically I should
0: have only been working 20%. Wow, that's great alignment. So you did RF and microwave circuit designs for many instruments, you know, dating back to the HP 8753 that you mentioned. And that was kind of the first single box network analyzer. And I heard after several versions, you had designed almost all the RF circuits in the instrument. What was it like doing designs back then compared to now? Well, the designs
1: tended to be much simpler and we tended to do blocks of design. So you do a mixer block, you do an amplifier block, you do a filter block and then cable them all together. Turns out the 8753 was the first product that HP had made in the RF world where we had integrated everything into a single package. And part of our ability to do that, um, and in fact, I was responsible for that particular design was coming out of Oregon State, we had a pretty strong um, computer-aided design program there and HP had just started doing computer-aided design for RF circuits. So I was uh, very involved in doing uh, kind of pre-analysis and showing that we could put these things together, they would work if we uh, designed them properly. And that got me started on the role of uh, working with computer-aided design as a kind of a principal design tool. Before that, it was really a lot of cut and try. You would build 10 different versions of something, see which one worked best. So um, that was a big change in the way we did design.
0: Yeah. Back in those days, I think they used to just cut things with razor blades and fine tune them as they went along. Uh, Things were
1: much smaller. We used diamond scribes instead of razor
0: blades. (laughs) So what other instruments did you design circuits for over the years and which one was the biggest design challenge? Well, for sure. The, um,
1: the final pass of the eighty-seven fifty-three, where it moved up to higher frequencies, became something called an eighty-seven twenty-two. I did design work in that um, interesting story there that uh, it had a problem where it was uh, the traces at high frequency were quite noisy. We couldn't quite figure out what was going on, and um, I created a simulation of the uh, high frequency path and put in all the bits and pieces. And sure enough, the simulation showed noisy traces. And one thing I noticed is in one of the feedback loops, they had used some pretty high value resistors. And I was thinking, you know, high value resistors means you're gonna have high noise voltage. What if I just drop these resistors by a factor of 10 or hundred? And the simulation said, yeah, the noise is gonna go away. And so I tried that, so I oh, will solder in a couple of resistors and that dropped the noise by maybe a factor of 20 times. So it wow. wasn't anyone, anything anybody knew about. I didn't really know about it. It was kind of just a guess on my part. But that was a really good example where the simulation tool really pointed the path to solving a problem.
0: Well, that leads into my next uh, question I wanted to ask you about. You, know, you were one of the first to use the computer-aided design tools that Agilent was developing, the ADS program. What types of things did you learn in those early years evaluating that software?
1: So uh turns out that that software was written by a colleague of mine who was sitting just two seats down from me in the, uh, in the development lab. He wrote, started the software as a way for him to design the first microwave amplifier chain. And uh, that actually spun off to become a whole division. And uh, because I had been using it quite often in the early days, I would ask them, hey, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? If you can make this change, I could... Uh, make this test better so I was one of the folks that they started to come to with you know what do you need next I was part of the to call back then the next bench syndrome and because I was really good about giving them feedback uh, in the testing I got a lot of early introduction to the different uh, capabilities that they were putting in the ADS and I got a lot of help in understanding how to use it and that's you know for me it was if you will, a really unfair advantage compared to everybody else in the rest of the world because I had the guy who's designing it not only explaining to me how to utilize it, but then taking my feedback and uh, changing the way the design program worked to kind of better meet what I had for expectations. So when you say, why does this thing work in this particular way? I say, well, it makes perfect sense to me because uh, some of it was designed based on my direct inputs.
0: Well, that's great when the lead user is in your uh, own company. I think that helps. So you seem to be uh, more involved in nonlinear testing these days. You know, How did you migrate to that area? Is your office neighbor, David Root, rubbing off on you?
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, every time I have a conversation with David Root, it's like having a conversation with a math professor. He's so um, knowledgeable about the mathematics behind the works that he does and uh, kind of microwave. Uh, engineering, that it's like a lesson for me. But um, it was that transfer that I talked about uh, going into the new organization. It moved me from being just in the network analyzer organization to uh, something they called converge test or uh, automated test, where they wanted to combine testing between network analyzers, spectrum analyzers, signal generators, and uh, have some way of testing kind of these newer components. This would have been early 2000s when they were just starting to try and analyze whole systems like cell phone system in the early GSM days. And um, that started me by necessity learning about, you know, what are the things that they care about in communications world. And so I started working with many of the customers, uh, large customers you'd recognize that uh, were in the early days of using ADS and uh, our instruments together. Sometimes we called it connected design, where you'd have the ADS simulator in the loop of the design path and the measurement path. So take data with instruments, pass it through to ADS, take the output of ADS, feed it back in the instrument path. And a lot of that was focused on how can we make amplifiers more linear? How can we reduce the IMD? How can we make receivers more sensitive? So that's really what started me that change of kind of from being inside the R&D group to being more uh, consulting with customers. Uh, into moving into the non, non-linear world.
0: So, VNAs do a lot more than measure S parameters. How has the design of VNAs changed, and how is a PNA or a PNAX different from the ENA and different older VNAs?
1: Uh, the, the sophistication insurance has become tremendously greater than in the early designs. In the early designs, it was basically an open-loop oscillator. We tried to lock it to one of the receivers, and See if we can measure magnitude and phase with analog phase detectors. Um, today, everything is digital. You know, we downconvert and digitize, and um, even the receivers are very wideband. If you look at a PNA receiver and you look at a spectrum analyzer receiver, there's not a lot of difference in those two chains anymore. The PNA is more designed as a kind of software-defined instrument. We can change what it does by changing the software. The older VNAs, for example, were really, they could do S-parameters. They couldn't do anything except S-parameters. and ENA, the earlier ENAs were kind of along the line, the same line. The newer ENAs that we have now are kind of a bridge between what a very sophisticated PNAX can do and what the older network analyzers could do.
0: Yeah, they certainly have come a long way. I think I'm impressed every year when I see the release of a new one, I'm like, wow, it just, the capabilities are tremendous. Well, you're going to see new stuff at the IMS show. I'm Uh, looking forward to it. So uh, how did the evolution of HP to Agilent to Keysight change the way you do things, or did it really not affect anything?
1: You know, it affected affected things in subtle ways. Of course, when we were at at the tail end of uh, being part of HP, the end of the 90s, we were kind of a small piece of a giant computer company. And so, you know, if I'm sitting on an airplane and somebody sees I have an HP hat on, they're like, oh, I have a problem with my computer. Can you, can you help me with that? <laughs> eh, not really. So when we split off to Agilent, that was kind of the first cleaving of computer only to what we would call analytical instruments. So that put us really much more focused on us doing R&D and uh, kind of investing in new capabilities. That's what started the new network analyzer, the PNA project at that time was okay we need to do something to grow our business move into new businesses but the biotech was really growing dramatically at that time so uh, to be very frank we were a little bit of a cash cow for the bio the electronic side was a little bit of a cash cow for the biotech side and uh, when we split between Agilent and Keysight because there was really completely different focuses of the two sides of the company and became Keysight by itself it changed very much the philosophy of what we were trying to do to do and how we tried to do it in particular uh there was a reinvigoration of basically saying we want to have the very best products and the very best capability in this electronics test business and we're going to invest to do that so i would say the split from between agile and keysight was really a significant one
0: So you have 36 patents. Uh, Which ones are you most proud of and why?
1: So I think the one I'm, uh, I have some hardware patents and some algorithm patents um, or call them uh, method patents. The hardware patent was the, maybe second or third patent I had done was on a combined um, gallium arsenide pin diode switch. That was the first high performance solid state switch. It had, more than 100 dB on-off ratio and could operate from DC to six gigahertz. And it ended up, uh, was a design for the B version of the 8753. And uh, that switch is still in uh, a very slight modification of it is still in production today. They haven't come up with a better way to do that. Uh, the modification is that we had to move from through hole parts to uh, surface mount parts because the through hole parts weren't available anymore, but um, uh, that's still probably the premium product that we make today. Nobody else makes something like that. In the uh, early 2000s, I got involved. Well, I have a patent on the filter tuning process that I developed as part of my PhD. That was a kind of the most mathematically rigorous patent. And there was hundreds of pages of math behind it because we just cited my thesis when we filed for the patents. But the uh, probably the most uh, beneficial to the company was patents Uh, on a a development I I worked on for making measurements on frequency converters and mixers. And that spawned a whole set of software applications that we sell to this day, some of our most popular ones. And um, really no one else has come up with a methodology that's worked as well. And so uh, that has been a very profitable patent for us and uh, one that's uh, got a lot of use.
0: And you've uh, written many articles, but your book on microwave component measurements uh, seems to be kind of the Bible in that area. How did you go about developing it? And why do you think it became such an industry standard?
1: So I uh, started develop- developing it. I got an um, email from a publishing company saying, hey, we've got this proposal for this network analyzer book. Would you take a look at it? And it was written by a professor in, uh, in Europe that was really pretty superficial. And I, I responded back, you know, I don't don't mean to be um, negative about it, but the, the the topic's pretty superficial and it's really covering the way things were done 20 years ago. It's not really that modern. And I uh, got feedback, I said, yeah, we kind of got that from a lot of people. Do you know anyone who would be interested in writing such a book? And I said, well, oddly enough, I have started an outline. <laughs> so it was, uh, again, I, th- I think I have been the... Um, a beneficiary of a lot of happy coincidences that I just happened to be prepared for at the time that they came along. And so I sent them my outline and uh, they passed it around to other reviewers and it was really well received. And uh, when I wrote the book, I put in a lot of details of how we do things and what we do. It actually had to get, I had to get a, a special contract with the company at the Time Agilent to say i I recognize that they have rights to everything I think about, and they grant me back the rights to write the book. So the book is not actually a company book, but with a private publisher. And uh, they actually had to go through and vet it. We lost about 20 pages of material, saddest stuffs to <laughs> company confidential. But because I had so many details about exactly what was going on inside our equipment, I knew about it because I developed it. Uh, A lot of people found that very useful to explain why do I see what I see. And uh, I put down a lot of math in there that uh, I drug out of a whole bunch of other people's notebooks so that it all got consolidated into a single place. And I think people find that very useful.
0: Yeah, you lived it every day, so you really knew it well. Uh, Indeed. So that kind of brings me to the next question. You know, what led you to start teaching and what courses are you involved in now being such an expert?
1: So my first shot at teaching was uh, back in the, I must say the early nineties, uh, when the local community college, which had a, a two year, you know, you do two years at the community college, two years at the uh, uh, Cal- uh, state university, UC system. And then, so the second year you had to learn electrical circuit fundamentals and they lost their instructor and they came up to HP, sent a note to HP, would anybody be able to teach the electrical circuit fundamentals class. And uh, so I volunteered to do that. And I really enjoyed that uh, class. Turns out, one of the persons who was in that class ended up about 15 years later being my boss. Fortunately, I did give him an A plus in the class. (laughs) Good So it was a wise decision on my part. But um, that was kind of my first uh, inroads into teaching. And I got involved with a program at the uh, University of South Florida, uh, their WAMI program. I was involved in that, helped them rewrite some labs in that program. And uh, several years later, I got involved with something our company was sponsoring or or was participating in something called the Berkeley Wireless uh, Research Community. And uh, in that uh, working relationship, I met uh, Professor Ali Nikmajad at UC Berkeley. And uh, we were going over some of his capabilities in his lab. His equipment was pretty old at the time, you know, previous generation. And so I worked with him and our uh, university uh, relations team to get uh, a new set of lab equipment, all new ENAs in there. And I rewrote all of their labs. So he invited me to co-teach the lab course, uh, electrical circuits, EE-142. And uh, that was really, you know, a very rewarding time for me to work with those students they're super sharp students you have to be on your top of your game when you're talking to them because if you make <laughs> the tiniest of mistake they will catch you out
0: <laughs> and they'll call you out very loudly right no no they're uh, very polite uh, about it but they will call you out so what are some of the latest design challenges that you're addressing these days with new instruments and how has software changed in the way you develop them
1: The design challenges are we have to do more, really more with less, but more capability, higher performance, and really we've kind of reached the top of the cost envelope that we can expect people to pay. So we have to figure out how to do that using methods that are less expensive, more integrated, being able to go to higher frequencies. Um, So it's the frequency that's really pushing the difficulties with us now in trying to get Uh, all our bits and pieces to operate and function at these high frequencies, but with high capabilities. Mostly, my work today is on uh, not circuit design, but uh, system design, and even above that algorithm design, developing, you know, how are we going to test the new components, digital components that have a digital on the input and an RF on the output? How are we going to measure the noise figure or something like that? doing multifunction measurements where we want to have the software redefines so that our PNA which used to be a network analyzer can now be a spectrum a- analyzer or a vector signal analyzer or a noise figure analyzer or a precision power meter uh, so that's the direction that my work has taken me recently is uh, going into these you know software defined instruments and
0: developing algorithms that can turn our hardware into whatever we need it to be so what developments are you most excited about in the industry going forward and why?
1: So I think 6G is going to be a whole new thing for us. Um, 5G was moving the cellular industry into the space that the satellite industry. So we kind of knew how to do all the test equipment for that. Uh, we had to maybe meet a, a different speed or cost envelope, you know, cost per test because you can't you know, spend $10,000 to test a $1,000 phone, test spending $10,000 to test a $200 million satellite. That's not a problem, but we knew how to do it. Now going into 6G, everybody's really wondering, how are we going to do that? How are we going to make radios at 300 gigahertz? How are we going to make the test equipment at 300 gigahertz? How are you going to do it over the air? So there's huge challenges in the 6G. And I think, um, While people are talking about maybe doing some deployments within the next two or three years, uh, uh, prototype deployments, we have a lot of fundamental work that needs to be done. And there's a lot of opportunities, uh, both inside our test equipment company, but also outside in the industry to figure out new ways of doing things. And so that'll be the next challenge that uh, I will be personally looking at.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much, Joel, for talking with me about your career and experiences in the industry. You're definitely an RF industry icon. As we look back at your work, we really appreciate you uh, talking with us today. To our audience, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.